This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sell investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. Just as our intro said, I am live on Wharton's campus back in the studio. Great to be back here with our, our sound engineer, Chris Teeks, live in the studio. Uh, we're going to be having a really interesting show. We're going to be talking cryptocurrencies today with two special guests. But before we get to them, uh, Professor Siegel, we're going to get your take on the markets. Uh, certainly been an interesting time to say the least professor bonds are crashing yields are spiking crashing. oh yeah i mean and it's this morning uh citibank came up with uh, you know hey we're gonna have 450 basis point hikes and that really kind of shocked the market i mean i i, I we have the 10 year at 250 um i think it's 248 right now but it hit 250 um, and likely to go higher as people realize that the Fed has to be far more aggressive. Now, the stock market is actually holding up fairly decently. I mean, we do have NASDAQ down 1.13, but basically we have a flat Dow. Again, uh, as, as I characterizing it, it's the battle between the numerator and the denominator. Profits are going to be good this year. Uh, there's no question about that. And it's a question of what you're going to discount those profits at. So as people get nervous about that discounting mechanism, you'll see a stock slip. Uh, but as people see those good profits, you know, then they say, where else am I going to go? I got to, I have to hold real assets. Stocks are real assets. Uh, I can't hold paper assets. And you see that playing out. Now, I, I actually think, um, you know, I was on CNBC yesterday, um, it's been a pretty good rally, and particularly in tech. Um, but it seems that with this yield moving upward, and if it moves up towards, especially towards 260 or 270, I think you're going to see the uh, tech sector, uh, you know, revisit its lows that it hit in January and February. Nothing is going to break through. Yesterday, I mean, even today, we have the Dow 6% below its all time high. You know, people. Talk as if, well, my God, we're in a bear market, and certainly we are in a bear market for hundreds of stocks. Um, yet, for those who are well diversified and in indexed, uh, we're not even in correction territory right now. So, <laughs> um, uh, the market is taking it well. Uh, it, it looks like a, a standoff. Um, uh, again, rising discount rates, but good profits. When you when you hear that fifty basis points hike, is that it, I, there's always this question like what the Fed should do, what they will do, their reaction function to the markets. How do, how do you see the Fed put if there is one, or is the Fed Fed put is completely gone? Well, I mean it's not completely gone. If the market goes down fifty percent, they'll move in. <laughs> it's just that put strike price is a little lower than it than uh, you know. It's not going to get nervous to. It's six percent below all-time highs, which yeah. are, you know, uh, quite remarkable. So, I mean, they're not going to step in uh, uh, any time soon. We, we see the December twenty-two. I'm looking at the December twenty-two Fed funds right now, selling at two twenty-seven. That's this December, and as we mark in the show, that's likely to be an underestimate of an unbiased because people use these, uh, you know, Treasuries and Fed funds futures. As hedges, if something really bad happens, COVID uh, variant is, uh, comes in that's really uh, quite bad or, or something in, in Ukraine, you'll rush to treasuries, the Fed will lower rates, and you'll have your hedge. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking the market is, is looking more towards 250 and maybe even 275 by year end, given uh, what we see in taking out uh, some of these uh, risk hedges. But uh, certainly even today, it's moved up. I, I, it's hard for me to see a lot of progress on stocks. They look attractive at long run, but people are going to have to get used to the fact. I mean, you go into one year treasury, go 1.6%. One year treasury bill, 
two years shot up to 227. I mean, these are, you know, when people had been sitting in cash, 0% uh, accounts, they're going to be in some serious move. Oh, I should mention one thing that is significant. Uh, last Tuesday, uh, this uh, a few days ago, we did have a, the money supply come out for February, and it showed a deceleration. Uh, the rate of increase um, from uh, January was only at a 4.5% rate. These are non-inflationary rates, but let me caution that this is only one month. Last year, we also had, I think it was the month of June, an even stronger deceleration on the money supply, and it only lasted one month, and we were out, out, uh, you know, off to the races again. So I wouldn't put too much stock in it. It's promising. Let's see. However, that was not associated with a rise in rates. Now that there's a rise in rates, we might really see the slowdown in that money supply. We, uh, so we're going to be looking closely. But uh, I was encouraged by uh, uh, the money supply announcement uh, for, for February. You know, one of the things that uh, maybe I'll sort of tease our conversation here coming up. Uh, one of the things that people look at crypto assets coming up is, is sort of the, this. They don't have this big money supply increase or this fixed supply, at least in, in Bitcoin. Um, I know you've been working on stocks for a long run. We've been working on it together and, and you're going to add yeah. some stuff on Bitcoin. Do you want to yes. give any questions you would have for our, our, yeah. our two guests coming up and, and any of your views on what, what's happening there, too? Yeah, well, there's so much to talk about. And I had a big section on Bitcoin. I really talk about more as a money substitute. I don't talk about the blockchain uh, potential. I talk about the money potential as a medium of exchange. Uh, and I think there is competition. Um, I mean, especially if you have an inflationary currency, the world currency cannot inflate five, six, seven percent a year because that's a loss. Now, right now, I think Bitcoin is challenged by a number of things. Its transaction costs are still higher than transfers, um, you know, which can be made electronically between bank accounts um, at uh, three, four, five, six basis points or less. I mean, Bitcoin cannot do that. At this point, however, internationally, the fact that you don't have to go through exchange rates and all the rest, it has more promise. And I think a lot of this, honestly, um, is, is the fault of the banking system. It's way behind the time. It, it should make transfers a lot easier and international transfers a lot easier um, <clears throat> between currencies and, and, and all the rest. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, and I've been speaking for years about this, the silliness of our credit card system where they charge the merchant 3% to give me 2% back. Well, you know, if you do a trend, I would just take the 2% discount, 2.5% discount, forget all this nonsense. Um, uh, but it's not in the interest of the banking system to do that because they're making so much off of credit cards. Now, you can go debit cards and all the rest, but very few merchants will discount. Now, there are uh, they do allow you now to surcharge for credit cards. Some people are doing it, um, but we need to encourage. Uh, if, if you know, if, if, it's it's a challenge for national currencies. First of all, limiting the supply so they're not inflationary, and secondly, making the system uh, efficient, um, uh, as efficient it can be. I I don't think you need a central bank currency. Um, that's a lot of discussion about should we have digital central bank currencies. Uh, truthfully, it can be done through the private sector, maybe by a nudge by the Fed or the central banks uh, saying, listen, I'll help you get your system more efficient. We should have click, 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 two basis point transfers of wealth everywhere. And I don't think Bitcoin can uh, uh, can do that. I'm, uh, this is something, you know, you, you, you can discuss uh, with your guests. But at this point, they're, they're, they're not. They're, they're not for small transactions, but, but it's a challenge. And they are for international transactions because, you know, Western Union and so many of these others, you try to send money and, you know, they'll, they'll scalp you. And so, you know, Bitcoin plays a role there. But that's another place where efficiency has to come in. So I, I think that basically the banking system around the world and central banks have to get their act together and make a, a currency that's, that's really uh, efficient. Well, Professor, on that note, I appreciate the comments. Thanks. We'll, we'll have a good weekend. We'll, we'll talk to you next week. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. Okay. I'm going to turn over our conversation. We have two great guests. We have Caitlin Cook, who's a director of OnRamp Academy, which is sort of a crypto integration platform. Uh, integration platform as a service, I think, is sort of a buzz phrase for, for OnRamp. Uh, and we got to know Caitlin over the last year, a good friend of the show. We also have Dan Gunsberg, uh, who is uh, a, a founder, co-founder, CEO of the Hero Network. And he's building a lot of his uh, technology on uh, Solana. We're going to talk a lot about Solana. Dan, Caitlin, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me here. Kate, let's maybe sort of start with you. Uh, based in Chicago, I guess you have been working with some of the team at Solana, or out of the Solana house, hacker house, as, as they call it. Give us a few seconds on uh, wh what your experience has been, a little bit on, on OnRamp and and, uh, and and how that all fits into the equation here. Sure. So like you mentioned, uh, and thanks for having me on today. I'm excited about this. But OnRamp Invest, as you mentioned, integration platform as a service, really just bringing this new age of crypto and DeFi to the RIA market. So independent financial advisors, crypto has been a retail driven trend. Their clients are probably invested in it, um, but advisors collectively have not, you know, had that integrated broadly as part of their practice. So what we offer at OnRamp is first an education where I sit, um, the education platform for advisors, helping them on not just what is blockchain, what is a Bitcoin, but also how do I integrate this into my practice? How do I do crypto estate planning, crypto tax planning, and so on? And from there, once advisors are educated, um, which is obviously an ongoing process with how quickly the space is moving, um, is the access side where we allow financial advisors to open accounts and trade crypto on behalf of their clients directly, as well as being able to link held away accounts um, should the client not want their advisor to manage that allocation for them or if they can't for compliance purposes. So been really interesting to see how the RIA space has been adopting crypto. Um, and it's been, you know, a slow crawl so far, but there's definitely been quite a bit of interest, especially on the education front, where these firms are realizing that this is something that won't be going away. So um, definitely seen a lot of momentum picking up even in the last few months. Yeah, as so Wisdom Tree has been a, a sponsor, an advocate of on-ramp, an investor. You know, we believe in in the mission, trying to bring access and education, and all that. Uh, so it's great to have you here, Dan. Tell your story. Uh, I guess people more more affectionately call you Gunny. Uh, give us uh, Gunny. Give us your background and and how you came to found Hero Network. Sure, um, I'll keep it at, I'll keep it somewhat brief. My background has been largely in uh, proprietary derivatives trading. Kind of grew, came up through the ranks in the Chicago trading. Uh, community started on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade in the uh, in the financial room uh, in actually 1994 and started trading in 1998. Um, actually shifted from trading uh, U.S. Treasury curve to um, to stocks in uh, like late 99, early 2000, kind of during the whole Nasdaq boom bust. Uh, moved back into futures around uh, 03, 04. Um, and then eventually, uh, in 2011, um, joined a, a, a large trading firm that uh, some friends of mine had founded. And um, while I was there in 2015, first um, started getting into uh, uh, buying Bitcoin. And um, I actually had learned about it a couple of years earlier. I really didn't know much about it. I came back from a trip to New York and ended up talking with one of my uh, one of my colleagues who had been quietly trading it on the side for for a couple of years and was in it very early, um, started learning about it. And then kind of um, somewhere around like when Brexit started to really kind of pick up, um, the whole Bitcoin story started to make a lot of sense to me. And uh, and fortunately, it was kind of coming out of a one of its nasty bear markets. And we, we all hear about Bitcoin volatility. And, you know, and um, you know, at that time, I think the peak to valley move had been somewhere in the order of like, 85 to 90 percent from where it was to um, where it had bottomed out and um i think i maybe got a little lucky on timing and and started getting involved in it and uh uh the next couple of years really kind of really went down the crypto rabbit hole and um, by 2017 had left um, i was actually chief operating officer at the firm at the time um i had left the firm uh and went into crypto full-time um and then in 2018, uh, my co-founder and I uh, came up with this crazy kind of concept to launch these more simplified way of, of trading options. Um, and we did it on crypto assets, uh, which was kind of the first gen of Hero Network, or sorry, of Hero. And um, then in 
late 2020, uh, we, we had been doing quite a bit of business with uh, Sam Freed, uh, who had, you know, just previously uh, in uh, mid-2019 had started FTX, uh, had been a, you know, a, a close colleague and peer of ours. And um, they, uh, his firm actually backed a project called Serum, um, which was actually the first on-chain central limit order book uh, that um, kind of proved out that you could take something as complex as a central limit order book, which like um, it's really kind of like the the match the, the place where where buyers and, buyers and sellers will will match up electronically, um, and uh, they were able to solve for putting it online and or sorry on chain, um, and that was kind of the first signal to us that there was really going to be uh, an opportunity to build more complex derivatives protocols on chain. Because prior to that. Uh, we were we had you know we had um, operated kind of tangentially to the Ethereum network, but we never built our applications directly to smart contracts and fully on chain, um, just because the throughput capabilities and the sheer costs of of Ethereum gas and either uh, gas at the time, um, it, you know, had always been um, very prohibitive to doing kind of high throughput, high transaction trading, which is really what you need when you're doing things like complex, you know, even like uh, more simplified, like uh, European cash settled vanilla options or futures, term structured futures, things like that, um, that are more classic in, you know, in traditional derivatives markets. And uh, it was the first signal to us that there was an opportunity and it happened to be built on top of Solana. So we started learning about Solana and um, really realized that this was a, a real opening um, because it was an L1 that that could support high throughput, uh, had very, very uh, nominal transaction fees and um, almost like completely non-consequential for that matter and uh, and were able to start building. And so we um, had transitioned everything into focusing heavily on um, building out a decentralized primitive um, for, uh, for derivatives and uh, that's where we're at today. Well, there's a lot of uh, words in there. It's, you know, when we first start learning crypto, it's like a completely new language to people. And so we got people in their cars listening. Um, so maybe we could go through some of those words um, for people. But for, so so I, I want to get into the options areas. There's a lot of interesting. I will talk about FTX later. But let, let's go to, so in, in, in we started off with Professor Siegel talking Bitcoin, and that was one of your entry points into Bitcoin. Um, and and one of his points is sort of the transaction, how much you can put through the Bitcoin network. Um, maybe let's start with Bitcoin for a second, then before we go to like Ethereum versus Solana. Anything to the what you heard from Professor Siegel on the transaction throughput on something like Bitcoin, and then uh, any of your your current takes on Bitcoin itself? Yeah, I, I don't think he's totally off. I, I do think that there's kind of some missing pieces there. Um, I, I do believe in Bitcoin um, as one form of a store of value as well. Um, but I think Bitcoin's really, it's real power. And I think where you're going to see it as we kind of evolve in coming years is in, um, it is truly the most secure way to send a transaction. And it, it doesn't just have to be a financial transaction. It could be a, a message, it could be a, you know, a message between two peers or, or two companies that are sharing um, high, highly classified information or IP or something like that. And the, the Bitcoin network is actually the most uh, secure way to actually transmit messages. And ultimately, when you're thinking about like our financial system, it is just messages that are being pushed back and forth between, uh, between different participants in our financial network. And so I think Bitcoin does um, offer the, the level of security. Um, the when you think about like the transaction cost of sending something through the Bitcoin network, you know, he he kind of made the comment of like, look, it's interesting because it's it's kind of on this like single currency, but you don't have to deal with like and you don't have to deal with like FX and things like that. But in the in the traditional world when you are sending transactions across um, FX transaction across, there's there's definitely spreads and arbitrage in there as well. That are being priced into the cost. Like it is not free to send those transactions. So um, I think because of some of the like, um, you know, crypto has has always had this like, or at least blockchain building. They they call it like the blockchain trilemma. I guess where you can kind of have scalability, decentralization, um, or secure and security, but you can't have all three. You can have two of the three. And I think what Bitcoin has had is really. 
Um, what it's really proven out is uh, security and decentralization. Um, it maybe doesn't have the level of scalability that um, that other blockchains have kind of been able to prove out, and which is also kind of goes back to Solana. So it's just to kind of transition that if you think about Solana, um, Solana is something that has very high throughput. It has exceptionally low transaction costs. And through its um, the way that uh, the the protocols within Solana work, uh, it does have the ability to scale um, substantially. And so we can talk a little bit about that later. But that's you know I think a lot of what has happened is a lot of um, uh, you know founders of other layer one protocols have come in and um, started to evolve away from you know from Bitcoin. But Bitcoin at the end of the day still you know, it does serve its purpose, I think, again, as like this base layer way of transmitting in a very secure fashion. I think because of the way it is set up um, from an economic standpoint, it does provide a substantial uh, store of value. Uh, and um, I do think it is something that should be a part of everybody's portfolio over the long term. It's sort of interesting. This is where we get some uh, views from K2 later. Like when, when you think about each crypto, it each has its own narrative of, of why people use it, why people get interested, what is the use in portfolios, and why is it why are they going to go up, right? And, and I think it's often like a simple demand and supply. The more people want to buy, the more the price goes up. Um, but the 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 for Solana, if you could give us some examples of what people are doing on Solana, what is the use case? Um, in, in, in the, the most popular use cases of the Solana system today? Sure. I mean, w without a doubt, um, Solana is kind of the, the leader. Uh, if you are doing anything that requires ultra high throughput with ultra low transaction costs. And so that obviously speaks very well to um, the financial world. So um, a lot of uh, a lot of innovation around um, markets, financial markets, so trading, derivatives, which is what Hero Network is focused on, uh, and then also like uh, payment rails. Is uh, you know payment rails have become uh, very interesting there, and, and um, I don't know to the extent that I can speak about it, but there there are definitely some of the largest payment um, uh, providers in the world that are actively. Um, pursuing uh, blockchains like Solana uh, to start integrating blockchain technology into their own ecosystems. So I, I think those, that's probably the two biggest use cases for it. It has actually been able to establish itself um, uh, kind of second to, to Ethereum, I think, in the NFT space. Um, you also have to think about when you're doing high throughput, high transactions, things like gaming, for example, uh, are um, you know are, are becoming pretty big in the Solana ecosystem as well. Uh, it, it really the power of it really is in the fact that that it is as close to dealing with a centralized stack as you can get, but with the benefits of disintermediation, uh, um, distribution, and uh, decentralization. We're talking with Caitlin Cook from OnRamp Invest, Dan Gunsberg Gunny from Hero Network. Kate, anything you would uh, add to what you've heard, or any follow-ups for Dan? Not a ton. I mean, I, I definitely agree with what he was mentioning, specific to Bitcoin as well. With looking at all of these, you know, different networks that are being created, it's more on the use case, right, for the viability and longevity of each of them. So I, I view a Bitcoin um, blockchain, right, a little bit much more simplistic, you know. In terms of secure transactions, definitely the leader there, and I don't think that that will change, right? But we've also seen just an explosion of innovation, right? So whether that's on the Ethereum network or on Solana, there's just been a ton of different use cases for improving or even building entirely new additions off of the traditional financial system that I think far surpass, you know, the Bitcoin use case as well. So I think just keeping in perspective the reasons why each of these are built out and the capabilities of each, right? Um, they're going to be used for different things and we kind of need to view them that way as well um, rather than just from kind of looking at price from a you know supply and demand standpoint. I think, um, you know, the, the future of this space is going to be a lot different for each of those. So a lot of the original quote-unquote DeFi decentralized finance platforms were made popular off of Ethereum. So Ethereum was this sort of, it's just, Ethereum's the second biggest crypto asset today um 
behind Bitcoin. Uh, and and so these some of these names, if people haven't heard of them, there's things like Uniswap, SushiSwap, Curve, uh, Aave. There's a bunch of these uh, DeFi applications built on Ethereum. Um, maybe Gunny, what if you were to had to say of what what these different use cases are? And so there's things like exchanges. There's borrowing and lending platforms, which is more like a bank in some ways. Um, how do you see, you know, wh why those were originally built on Ethereum? And then as you see, is, is Solana just going to be competing with them? Are people, are the same developers working in both? How, how do you think about the, the people who are going to extend it to Solana? Yeah, I, I think first that um, Ethereum, you know, prior to some of the recent advancements in Solana uh, was really the the fastest and easiest way to solidity, which is the programming language that's used to build an Ethereum, um, made it very easy to build on Ethereum, which is a, a major uh, advantage for Ethereum. Now, where Ethereum has suffered is in um, uh, generally how like the initial implementations of paying for transactions on Ethereum or just its ability for um, high throughput just didn't exist. Now they're doing a lot of building uh, in what are called layer twos now, um, things like Arbitum or Optimism. Uh, there are there's several Polygon, uh, several of these projects that are designed to kind of capture some of the benefits of Ethereum and then massively increase the speed of it, but um, still doesn't compare to the level that's required of, you know, of something like Solana and also you have to kind of look out into the future where Solana um, is, and I don't want to go too far down the technical rabbit hole here because we'll definitely lose <laughs> listeners, I think, but um, uh, it is designed to scale with the speed of hardware. And you have to think that hardware over time will continue to become more efficient and faster, which will allow Solana to be faster. And really to get to the scale of like Visa or the New York Stock Exchange or you know, major incumbent institutions, Solana is going to have to scale way larger than just 50,000 transactions per second, which is kind of what its headline is right now. But to, you know, kind of frame that Ethereum um, is on the order of like 50 transactions per second. Mm. Right. So you, you really cannot facilitate, again, high throughput, you know, um, systems uh, in Ethereum, regardless of what innovations are made there right now. But Ethereum... Um, you know, as you said, it does have the largest uh, community of users. It has captured major network effects, which is one of the powers of building a decentralized network. It has built one of the most powerful uh, developer communities um, I've, I've ever seen, even even larger than that of Bitcoin by a by a long shot, um, because it it was it had true product market fit with engineers is very, you don't have to be a low level C++ engineer or a Rust engineer to be able to build on it effectively. And that allowed products to spin up very quickly on it. And, um, but it did sacrifice things like security and, um, you know, and some other elements. And, but it is really why it's the most powerful um, uh, uh, network out there to date. And, you know, as I said before, I do think you're going to end up in this kind of separation where I think Ethereum will end up being used for um, a lot of things that are kind of like everyday applications. And it could be things like within the bank system as simple as like um, borrow lend or simplifying um, something as simple as like a real estate transaction. Yeah. Um, that, like it, it really helped disintermediate and kind of remove the middle layers that have historically stood in between the transactions like that, um, smart contracts solve that. And I'm um, putting them on chain in a secure fashion where you don't, you no longer have to trust a centralized, one single centralized party to, to be the, the judge, jury, and executioner on, on whether something is valid or not. You can decide um, validity through a mechanism, through consensus, consensus mechanisms that no longer require that. It can require multiple computers from a network to all agree on the state of something and whether or not it's true. So you get you become a world that no longer exists around needing to trust. It becomes a trustless world where trust is not required. Well, and 
that is really one of the most powerful elements of, of all of this. We have Caitlin Cook of OnRamp Invest. We have Dan Gunny Gunsberg of Hero Network. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, you're listening Behind the Markets. Uh, Kate, so one, one thing that I guess we got introduced from, to Gunny from your time in the your sort of Solana Hacker House. What's, what's it been like working out of the Solana Hacker House sometimes and how do you guys get connected and, and what's, it, what's it been like part of that developer community there? Yeah, so this really started from wanting to get out of the house, honestly. We're working remote. Get outside. Um, yeah, get outside. Um, it's been great to actually be able to connect with some people. And this really started from, there's a really robust community on the Solana ecosystem of just a lot of builders and developers that really have been hosting events globally over the past few months, even throughout COVID. And there was event an event in Chicago and a couple of my friends, that work in the VC space in crypto invited me to come, met some friends there that actually live around the corner from my apartment, which is a small world, but they introduced me to some of the team at Hero and there is a Solana office in the West Loop of Chicago. So they offered to for me to work remote from there whenever, you know, whenever I wanted to get out of the house. And it's been a really interesting time so far getting to meet people and just seeing it's super inspiring to see all of the builders in the Solana ecosystem. Um, it's again, really robust community of builders, a lot of really cool projects and protocols and dApps being, being built on top of that. And, you know, it's, it's probably the, the strongest community, you know, that I've interacted with, even including, you know, Ethereum network, Bitcoin. Um, there's, there's something special about Solana. So getting to learn about that and being around people building in the space is, has been an awesome experience. I've got one of my crypto analysts, Blake, listening in, and uh, he's very jealous. He would like to come spend time in the hacker house. Uh, but so, so Dan, uh, when you think about the, the developer ecosystem around Solana, sort of talk through the community, how how you see uh, how many developers are coming onto Solana versus these other platforms. Like, Give, give a little bit of statement about the ecosystem from your perspective. Sure. I, yeah. It, I mean, I think definitely in the last... Um, I'd say in the last like 12 months, there probably has been on a, um, on a relative basis, more growth within the Solana developer ecosystem than any other blockchain um, that has, you know, to date. And um, you see a very specific type of engineer. It's, it's, it's really kind of like a, what I would say, like a more leveled up engineer that historically maybe is a little bit um, uh Right, a little closer to the bare metal of of um, of development, which would mean like guys that come out of like developing C plus plus or kind of like real core types of development languages, um, and have either transitioned to Rust or um, which is really which is the language that Solana is built on, um, or have are a young engineer that got to Rust, which is rel- a relatively new language. Um, right out of the gate and is now very proficient. Um, what has been really cool and kind of, you know, relating it back to the whole Chicago um, uh, contingency that you have on the show today uh, between myself and Caitlin, uh, you know, we recently, just to kind of frame it, we recently did a workshop uh, with Jump Trading, who, uh, which is now has Jump Crypto, which is one of the largest uh, principal trading firms on the planet, professional trading firms on the planet. And uh, we we had a Solana workshop uh, that um, the majority, there was, I think, a total of 400 engineers that came to the one-week event, and the majority of them were actually engineers from uh, professional trading firms. Hmm. So it actually was this incredible moment where in the traditional world, it would be like majorly kind of sacrilegious almost to have engineers of these highly private competing firms work together. And now they've all kind of descended upon Solana to build out technologies that are really being, um, really are like kind of the common element infrastructure components that are being built on top of Solana to become a part of the fabric of our global financial system. And so that was really, really profound to, you know, especially for me coming from the proprietary trading world for the last 20 years and then going to see this and seeing all these engineers come together and work on this common blockchain together was was very powerful and it really is some of the most talented engineers I've ever met. 
That that connects a, a a random story from last night for me because I was looking at some a site that posted internships on uh, and jump trading was like the highest paid internships. That connects a story for me actually. That's really <laughs> interesting. That. Um, I, that's a fascinating story on how the whole community is coming together, uh, and that is the whole spirit of sort of Web three. It's as that people are are collaborating in different ways, and they they used to collaborate. Maybe let's connect the story for you at, at Hero as, as, as you're building. I mean, one of the questions that we had on Solana and, and looking at it is from an investment standpoint, that you had this issue where in January it was down a lot. Like, so the Solana network was down. Like, as somebody who's building on the platform, how do you think about that? How did it would have impacted you or it did impact you? And what do you think sure. happens in the future there? Good. That's a, that's a great question, Jeremy. Um, you know, I think that I think if you kind of can frame this back to the early days of the internet, and um, you know we didn't have the level of access and transparency that we have today, and you have to think that as TCP/IP was being developed, that it wasn't a straight line of, with no bugs and no issues. The thing that happens in crypto and kind of the ethos of crypto, there's always this ethos in crypto of like, call it like test and fraud. <laughs> like you're, you're always kind of like in this beta version um, and you're constantly evolving it. And really what you're seeing is just the early stage of very early primitive layer technology. And, you know, I was thinking about this during the break and I think it's something to really kind of communicate is that a lot of the things that we talk about, and it's kind of like trying to teach, like Caitlin and I were talking about this yesterday, it's kind of like trying to teach somebody options. Like, this is not an easy thing to do, right? It's, these are nonlinear markets. And when you have somebody that has 20 plus years of experience trading it, and you sit down with somebody that just wants to learn, it's very hard. Like what I, what I may think is kind of a one-on-one way of explaining it is something that's quickly going to, you know, kind of go over people's heads. And so um, it's really kind of challenging to, communicate a lot of what is being built here uh, uh, in a way that, that everybody can get it. But also, it's really a sign of the times. It's where we're at in the evolution of this technology. It's so early. And I think when the real, it, which is really a, a, a blessing for everybody, because you are seeing this firsthand, right? And things are sometimes not going to, you're going to have issues. So how would we handle something like Solana going down? Like one innovation that we've made and one of the very difficult things to solve on chain was something like um, liquidity or market maker protection. So we, we think that it's very important to protect your liquidity because obviously good deep liquid markets over time create tighter spreads. It creates fairer pricing for the, uh, the end user and buyer seller of, of whatever it is that they're trading. Or, or wanting to invest in. And um, when something like that goes down, like we have been able to now solve and build in controls that can basically um, not necessarily put things on pause, but it can protect the liquidity and just back the market, the, the participants away and kind of prevent them from starting from, from doing things that can potentially be harmful to them, to them or to the network itself. And so um, out of some of these kind of problematic things that that are pop up, and they're just they're just issues that are going to happen as you scale. Again, very early in this technology, uh, um, we bring solutions out of them, and so that's one element of it. And I do think that the 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 real powerful element is that you're getting this view in to something very early over time, and as um, more and as more and more this technology evolves, these complexities are going to get obfuscated away from the masses. So much like back to my original point, nobody or very a very a, only a handful of people really knew what TCP/IP was prior to AOL ever. And I think once AOL came out and Netscape and Mosaic and these other ways of accessing the internet, you now um, were able to kind of get your head around what it was that you were participating in. So, yeah, social and social media brings it real time, like you can see it everywhere. It, it's Way like a right. second uh, something goes down, it, it goes uh, goes viral on, on social media. It's a very different different world that we're living in. It's, yeah, and it's great. It, it, it actually introduces this level of accountability that historically um, 
you, uh, you know, you could, I think there was, you know, not too long ago, we, you could get away with a lot and yeah. a lot of things under the rug. And like, it took a, a, you know, a powerful government body to be able to like uproot it. And most of the time it didn't get uprooted. And something that's very interesting about blockchain, which is ironic relative to a lot of, you know, some of the things that happen around the regulatory aspect and like the fact that people say that things like Bitcoin and whatnot are only used for nefarious purposes, which is simply not the case. Blockchains actually are public. Every transaction that exists is a public transaction. Anybody on this earth could go on the internet and go to a block explorer and look at a transaction. And um, Not true for cash. You don't know where your cash is going. Exactly. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it came from. I could, I could actually, through some very easy chain analytics, look at every cryptocurrency that I, held, that I hold in a wallet and trace it back to other wallets that owned it and trace it ultimately all the way back to the genesis of when that cryptocurrency was either minted or mined. Yeah, very interesting. So Dan, tell us a little bit more about Hero. And so where are you in your development process? What, what, who are you working with? I assume from the story of, of working with Sam at FTX that you're gonna be interacting with FTX in some capacity, that may be a bad assumption, but what, where, are, where are you all? Yeah, no, we, um, we're, we're actually uh, about uh, four weeks out from going what is called to mainnet. We're currently in like a, a devnet sandbox environment where we're, we have some of our, um, our partners who are early to the network, uh, some of our liquidity partners and some of the uh, application layer operators, uh, you know, DEXs and some, uh, you know, some other operators who are participating in it to do some very early debugging of the technology. And, uh, and then in about uh, four to six weeks, we're going to start rolling it out more publicly. Uh, some of the notable network participants um, who have been involved with Jump Trading, uh, Alameda Research, um, which is the, the, the professional trading firm that Sam Fried had founded uh, prior to launching FTX, uh, Susquehanna, which is another large professional trading firm, Chicago Trading Company, uh, some crypto-centric um, uh, 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 broker-slash-trading firms, Ledger Prime, Genesis, um, Coinbase, is an investor. Solana is an investor um, from the kind of macro hedge fund world. Alan Howard, Lewis Bacon. Well, very some, um, you know, we, we, we've, we really had thought through, um, you know, as our goal is really to kind of sit at this intersection of traditional finance and this new decentralized world. Um, so what will you be trading? What, really, like what, what kind of assets? Is it crypto assets? Is it stocks, bonds? What are you going to be providing? No, it, it, it's, it's derivatives. Um, on crypto assets to start, and uh, and then will um, will evolve over time, and as um, we uh, gain more uh, licensing, you know, like um, as applications come in and gain more licensing around in terms of regulatory jurisdictions, and um, but it uh, it is uh, derivative, so um, term structured, you know, expiring futures on Bitcoin, for example. Uh, or um, standardized options on Bitcoin or Ethereum hmm. or Solana or different types of crypto assets. How do you think about what goes into that? I mean, as, as sort of real conversations, there's there's the there's all sorts of the. Bridging of traditional finance and crypto, you know, there's some of these other exchanges have done th those types of derivatives in in some ways. Um, as others, as you, are you working with certain custodians? How do you think about what 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 assets you are going to so, be able to do derivatives on? It, so, so Hero Network is, you know, a good way to think about it is it's really just the it's the base layer plumbing. And so we're really um, building this bottom layer for applications who are more the consumer or end user facing um, component to plug into. And then it is all set up to be decentralized, meaning that um, over time, the governance and the, the decision making and, and how the network evolves will be decided on through uh, consensus by the network of users and participants, not by a single, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, governing body. And um, so 
how things get uh, developed through the network and what gets put there. Initially, there's like a base set that will be that will be put out during this early period, and then over time, all those decisions will be handed to the network, and all the infrastructure and technology is designed so the participants can actually facilitate the launching of new products, the building of new derivatives. Engineers will come globally and start building on top of our base layer technology to evolve it and. Uh, it's really done in this very fascinating, disintermediated, and decentralized way. It's very, it's very cool. That's like the main difference between like old finance, like building a corporation. You had a set of you know executives and a board who sort of decides where it goes, and then this is new decentralized finances. You basically you build a tech, and then people come and build on top of it. It's uh, it is a fascinating. So what would if if you had a so you said there's like a base layer of things that you might come available. Like, so is, do you have a number of, of crypto assets you think would become available in this, in this option format or the futures format when you're, when you're building on it? it um, I can tell you it'll be a very limited set to start. Like yeah. it'll be on just the most liquid assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, um, uh, crypto assets like that. Okay. And, uh, and then over time, um, we will open up uh, as the network um, procures uh, more participants. We'll open it up to governance to kind of effectively vote. Someone will put a proposal and say, hey, we want to launch this token on this or we want to launch these types of new assets. And then the network works as a community to um, figure out the technology requirements if they don't currently exist and then vote it through as as the founder of this platform, how how do you think about you you know what your ownership stake and how you get how does the economics accrue to these developers? Like is, there's a, it's sort of the famous one, I guess. Well, I don't know how famous, but there's in in Ethereum you have Uniswap and and sort of Sushi Swap, and then there's some of the transactions what started going towards paying people in Sushi, but Uniswap didn't have some. Of that. How how do you think about that economics for what you're building and how that accrues to the various stakeholders? It's a full value accrual mechanism. So all of the um, the fees and everything that that accrue to the network accrue back to its participants. So it does work as this kind of functioning wheel where uh, the more participants there are, the more volume that comes through, the more this value accrues back to um, stake token holders of the of the hero token who have taken their tokens, staked them to the network, are participating in governance, are participating in the network as an engineer or as a um, providing certain services, you know, techn uh, technology-based services to the network. Those all uh, are rewarded through participation and through um, basically a recycling of, uh, you know, of um, fees that come in and uh, uh, to the network. And then also, over time, like other tokens will end up coming on and like it will participate with serum, for example, maybe they'll, you know, they'll be able to earn here or serum tokens in some way for participating in certain ways. It will evolve to things like that. But for right now, it's um, staking hero to the network and then evolving and then uh, uh, the value of the network occurring back to the stake token holders. Kate, I've been dominating these questions here because it was just fascinating. I, I, I didn't uh, give you a chance to jump in here. Any, any things you're thinking? Any things you'd like to hear from Dan? Uh, well, well, selfishly, you know that OnRamp and Wisdom Tree, along with Holtz Wealth Management, have been working on providing model portfolios for financial advisors, right? And one of those being the, the R-Tree Index, which is really more of like a you know, a broad basket allocation to different areas of the crypto ecosystem, whether that's layer ones or payment payment systems and whatnot. So um, that Solana was just added there. Solana also is now available to be to be trading on, um, you know, on our platform as well through Gemini. So not not really a specific question, but excited to to have that opportunity and glad to have Dan on today to talk about you know why Solana and the the opportunity that it presents for for investors looking into this space. When you when you're talking to advisors, Kate, and you see um, what what the roadblocks for getting crypto are, like how how is it developed? Like where do you see that? Uh, what what's the conversations like? Well, they're they're definitely a little bit more on the introductory side for the most part. I think that 
a lot of the advisors we worked with at first were the ones that have been learning about the space for a while, have, you know, a little bit more crypto savvy, but the, the broad majority of advisors are the ones that are, you know, just getting started on it. Their clients may know more than they do, but they recognize that this is a trend that's not going away. So they want to get educated on it now. Um, a lot of the, the barriers to entry on, you know, the RIA side for advisors is, as you can imagine, around regulation and compliance. So a lot of the conversations are pretty dominated by regulatory updates with the SEC, um, Biden's executive order recently, things like that, um, and how RIAs can get into this space in a compliant manner, which is definitely one of the bigger roadblocks for more of the legacy institutions right now. It's figuring out how not if they should get into this, because I think a lot of a lot of firms have recognized that they they should at this point. Um, but you know how they can do that in a way that you know is compliant in at the, in its highest form. So that's that's been a big part of it for me. Is a lot of conversations around regulation and compliance. And Dan, I know you were having some audio issues there, but any we're in our sort of final closing moments. Any. Uh, closing thoughts from you on where you want hero people to follow hero or any any things you want uh, people to take away from this conversation after you asked that again I was having a little bit of any we're in our final moments any closing thoughts what you want people to take away from the conversation oh yeah no I I, I, um, this has been great and uh, I think just a good takeaway is this is really a, a, a very interesting and transformative time for, uh, you know, for crypto it is starting to get real mainstream adoption. You are starting to see a lot of the larger institutions that really have historically been the gateways for kind of the rest of the world to um, adopt new technologies and, and, and new uh, innovations in finance and in um you know, in everything from finance to gaming to uh, the ways that we conduct our everyday lives and businesses. And I think this is a real opportunity right now to uh, to begin to participate and kind of rethink how, um, you know, how technology uh, uh, integrates with our everyday lives. And um, it's a very exciting time. Well, this has been fascinating. So, Kate, I would like to thank you for making the introduction to Gunny and his team at the Solana Hacker House. Uh, Hero, if, if uh, it's not spelled traditionally like you've seen before, H-X-R-O. I should have t- given the, gotten the story of that, Gunny. Um, but thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You listen to our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.